0: Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and what an end of week it has been. Of course, if you want all the detail of Scott Morrison's Napoleonic-style power grab, you can catch up with The Week on Wednesday episode from last Wednesday, where Van and I broke down exactly how undemocratic and obtuse and obscure and downright dangerous, Scott Morrison's multiple secret ministries, his shadow government if you will, really was, and continues to be because the fallout is continuing. At the end of the week, there's been an inquiry called for into the Modern Manufacturing Initiative Scheme. This was a scheme designed to help modern manufacturing flourish in Australia. Now, $828 million of this money was directly approved by Scott Morrison as Prime Minister, it should be said, despite it being administered by the department. Now, there were 17 events where Scott Morrison announced this money, all of which occurred in late March, early April, and even during the election campaign. Despite the fact that Ed Husic, who was the Labor shadow minister at the time, wrote to Scott Morrison as Prime Minister, it's weird that we have to keep clarifying which portfolio Scott Morrison was in at the time, but wrote to him and said that Labour's view was that he should follow the departmental advice. Now, it doesn't appear that that's happened, so much so that the confusion around the program was so deep and confused that originally it was reported that $748 million had been allocated. Then that was revised down to $601 million. And now, finally, it's been revealed in the Age and Sydney Morning Herald that it was $828 million. Now, five of those announcements happened during the election campaign, yet more shredding of our... Conventions, our democratic processes, our caretaker model of government during elections. Scott Morrison has no respect for our democracy. There is such danger where we have someone who believes that everything he does is in the national interests because he believes he is guided by God. I have no issue with people of faith. My wife is a person of faith, my family members are people of faith but they do not believe that every action they undertake is in the national interest because they are guided by God. Scott Morrison over the last week has clearly shown no remorse, no repentance. In fact, he's gone so far as to go online, interact with and create memes about himself and his power grab. It is the most bizarre, non reflective and non-repentant activity one can imagine. Staying up all night, playing on the internet, making memes of yourself, taking on multiple ministries. If Scott Morrison is listening, and I sincerely doubt that he is, but if you're listening, Mr Morrison, you need to understand that people make those memes not because they're happy for you or because they think that what you've done is interesting or funny or witty, they're making them because that's the way they can communicate their sense of frustration, a sense of powerlessness, a sense that no matter what we do, individuals like you, Scott Morrison, will undermine democracy and consolidate power in their own hands. For you to go onto those platforms, for you to go into those spaces and hijack people's Venting people's expression, people's desire to engage in a political process where they feel they have no point of engagement is not only wrong and ignorant, it shows just how self entitled and privileged you really are. And frankly, the sooner you're out of our parliament, the better. Of course, people should remember that there are ways that we can engage in the political system, beyond memes, as funny and interesting and cathartic as they may be, we can join our union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join your union right now because unions are doing things to make our country better, and I'm going to talk a bit about that shortly. I want to finish talking about Scott Morrison because, of course, on Insiders this morning... Barnaby Joyce, the former Deputy Prime Minister under Scott Morrison and now a shadow minister under Peter Dutton, was interviewed by David Spears. Now, the interview itself is a title train wreck, as you'd expect from Barnaby Joyce. It has the usual level of belligerence, refusal to answer the question, refusal to acknowledge that there are any problems, and at the same time, self aggrandisement. That is, in fact incriminating. Barnaby Joyce manages to tick all of the Barnaby bingo boxes. The thing that really struck me was how much Barnaby Joyce views his role in Parliament as being to represent the National Party, first, foremost, and last of all. It's his only interest. So he talked about the fact that he was aware He became aware over time, uh, through opaque means, whatever that means, that Scott Morrison was acting as resources minister and intervening in project approvals. He didn't raise it with Scott Morrison, according to him, in his interview with David Spears, because he had negotiated an extra ministry that the Nationals were not entitled to. He had negotiated extra staff that the Nationals were not entitled to, and that he had Negotiated extra support for the regions that the nationals were not necessarily entitled to. These are his words. This is what he was saying. And so he didn't confront Scott Morrison because, in his own words, Scott Morrison would simply take back that ministry and give it to a Liberal. So what he was really doing was not standing up for democracy, not standing up for the people of Australia, not even really standing up for the nationals. He was standing up for the ministers who were getting their ministerial allowances. He was standing up for the ministers who were getting their ministerial staff. Barnaby Joyce allowed Scott Morrison to take over a ministry held by a National Party minister to intervene in projects that that National Party minister believed were in the nation's best interests. Now, we can argue about whether that project was or wasn't. Personally, my view is that it wasn't. but. The the national minister for resources believed that it was. Now, Barnaby says, oh, well, you know, he could have taken it to cabinet. No, Barnaby, no. The minister was responsible. The minister got to make the decision. And what minister is going to take on the prime minister who has secretly, secretly gathered a whole range of powers into his own grasp when he doesn't even have the backing of his own party leader? This revelation by Barnaby Joyce is not so much a revelation as it is a confirmation that Barnaby Joyce is only interested in the money and the perks, the position and the power. It's got nothing to do with democracy. It's got nothing to do with delivering for ordinary working Australians, whether they be in the regions, the suburbs or the city. You know, Barnaby said that people are sick of talking about this and they don't want to talk about it anymore and that what they really want to talk about in in the queue at the IGA checkout is modular nuclear power stations. Now, I live in a part of central Victoria where we have an IGA supermarket. It's the only supermarket we have, Barnaby, and I can tell you without doubt that not only do we not want a modular nuclear power station in our town, we're having arguments about whether or not we want transmission wires that won't even go through the town, but will be off in the distance. If Barnaby Joyce really thinks that regional communities want modular nuclear power stations built in their backyards, I hope he's volunteering to provide the land. Because we all know you've been banking a bit of it, Barnaby, so maybe some of the Joyce family estate can be used from modular nuclear power station. Quite frankly, I don't think we should have them at all. I've never heard them discussed outside of being put forward by a member of the National Liberal Coalition. And this is not fallout for people. We're not talking about little power cores that you can just plug into your house and everything's powered and there's no emissions and there's no waste and it's all good and it's all fine. Life is not a video game, Barnaby modular nuclear power stations will generate huge amounts of nuclear waste. And where's it going to go, mate? Where's it going to go? Because I can tell you, regional communities are not that keen on toxic soil, let alone nuclear waste being buried in their backyards. So Barnaby's appearance on Insiders, it was a long interview. There wasn't much discussed He refused to answer the question, really. That little tidbit, that little insight into his mindset, into his thinking, really is the only thing that stood out. We should remember also, if Peter Dutton wins the next election, if Peter Dutton becomes Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce will again be a minister. And as the Insiders Panel pointed out, Peter Dutton was aware of the secret appointment to health by Scott Morrison of Scott Morrison and said nothing told no one, did not let the parliament or the people know. The current coalition is chock to the gills with ministers and people who believe that Scott Morrison was right, who kept his secrets, who kept his power grab a secret from the Australian people. They can never be allowed back into government. Peter Dutton can never be allowed to be Prime Minister. Barnaby Joyce can never be allowed to be a Minister of the Crown ever, ever again. I want to talk about an issue that came up at the end of the week that you may or may not have been following. It might have been a bit tricky to wrap your head around. There was a significant decision in the Fair Work Commission around the gig economy. So people might remember Diego, who was a delivery worker who won his case at the Fair Work Commission and Deliveroo appealed to the full court of the Fair Work Commission. In between those hearings, there was a High Court discussion and decision about contracting versus employment. What the High Court has decided unstitches over 100 years of Australian precedent. In Australia, we've always operated on the basis of reality, not just what's written down, but what's actually happening in a workplace, taking into account the various factors that make up an interaction between a worker and a boss, between an employee and an employer, between a contractor and a contractee. These reality tests have allowed many Australians to challenge unfair dismissals, adverse actions. That's where they're given less shifts for no reason or picked on for some trait that they have. Now the High Court has said that what counts above all else is what's written in the contract, Now, on the surface of it, you can see why that makes some sense. If I agree to a contract, I agree to a contract. But just like the neoliberal economic models that don't take into account power, simply relying on the words in the contract ignores the power dynamic. In the case of Diego and Deliveroo, and almost everyone who is a contractor in the gig economy, the power imbalance is massive. The company controls the shifts, the company controls the platform, the company controls the uniforms, the company controls the power uh, the pay rates. All of the power sits with the company. So when the company offers a contract, it essentially sets all of the terms. There is no equal partnership between a gig economy worker and a multinational multi-billion dollar corporation. That is not an equal negotiation. And quite frankly, the idea that any worker in our economy, whether they're a gig worker or a worker going for a part-time job or a casual job, is going to be able to negotiate the terms of a contract against an employer the size of Deliveroo or Coles or the Commonwealth Bank by themselves themselves Because don't forget, the contract is always between the individual and the employer or the company that's contracting them. It's a ridiculous notion. It's built on a series of false premises. The idea that gig economy workers are their own business and are contracting as a business to a business is also ignorant of reality. Sadly, what happened this week was that the Fair Work Commission full bench had to rule against Diego and against contract workers in the gig economy. And they did that at the same time as acknowledging that if it wasn't for that High Court decision, they would have been ruling in the opposite direction, that the relationship between contract workers in the gig economy and the platforms that contract them has all of the hallmarks of employment. And in actual fact, they are employees in every way that counts, in every way that is real, except that there is a contract that says otherwise. And that's why Diego lost his case. Now, the Transport Workers' Union, of course, has been supporting Diego and working very hard in this space. And a big shout-out to all of the Transport Workers' Union members who I know listen to this show This fight is far from over. It's important to remember that. While the High Court has made this decision about contracting and it has had this impact at the Fair Work Commission, legislation still rules the day. And the Labor Party has committed to making sure that gig economy workers and platform workers get proper protections, that sham contracting, whether it's in transport, aged care, the NDIS, or even now, as Uber is moving into medical transportation, that is moving patients from hospitals to rehabilitation centers or from hospital to hospital, making sure that workers are properly recognized and have proper minimum standards. In my view, every worker should be entitled to at least the award. That's just common sense. That's what that system is for. That is our minimum Threshold, that is our minimum safety net. And it is built on the idea that in different sectors you have different requirements, and we recognize that and we provide appropriate conditions and wages for those sectors. What these gig economy contracting platforms are doing is undermining the very fabric of our employment system. And the case that went to the High Court has overturned a hundred years of precedent. Now we need a government to step up and overturn that through legislation, to legislate the rights of working people, to have proper wages, proper conditions, a safe working environment, and to be able to bargain for improvements. Because there's no way, there is no way that an individual like Diego, who is determined to be by a court, their own business, can negotiate against a multi-billion dollar corporation to change their wages or conditions. But if all of the Diegos, if all of the delivery delivery workers were standing together, were unionized, were making demands on their wages and conditions that were reflective of what they earned and what they deserved, then they might have a chance and until our laws change to allow that until our laws change to encourage that we're going to continue to see the kind of awful wage cuts that came out this in the last week as well cost of living will keep going up and wages will keep going down so hopefully as we get closer and closer to the jobs and skills summit and we get closer and closer to parliament having laws put before it that will address these issues working people will get to see how a Labor government changes their lives for the better. Of course, there's so much we can do in the meantime. The, the struggle in this area is not over. You can still join your union, even if the High Court has decided that you're a contractor, not, a, not an employee. You can join at australianunions.org.au, that's W-O-W it's so important. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in transport, whether you're in the NDIS, whether you're in aged care, whether you're in retail, whether you're in manufacturing. I mean, if you're in one of these manufacturing businesses that got one of these government grants, it's not your fault as a worker that Scott Morrison decided to politicise the grant process. But of course, we know that workers... Could bear the cost of it, right? We know that if the investigation finds that the money was unduly given and, you know, there has to be a clawback, it's unlikely there'd ever be a clawback. But if there was, we, we know who bears the brunt of that. We know it's not the executive. We know it's not the CEO. We know it's not the shareholders. It's the workers who bear the brunt of it. That's why it's so important to be in the union. So you can stand up and say, no, we didn't do anything wrong. We're not going to wear the cost. So join your union, join today. I also want to give a big shout out to everybody who has become a supporter of The Week on Wednesday. We've had our biggest week of new supporters jumping onto our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's www.buymeacoffee.com slash Wednesday, And just such a big thank you from me and Van to all of you. It's really great. We're really kicking goals in terms of getting more downloads and more listeners and it's all happening because of you. If you like, share, comment, leave a review, uh, you can do all that uh, on just about every platform where you listen to The Week on Wednesday. And of course, this Wednesday, we're going to have a bit of a deep discussion on what's going on in higher ed. Ben and I have been talking to some people in the higher education sector. There's been a lot going on. There's stuff happening in WA, there's stuff happening in Victoria, there's stuff happening in New South Wales. Most of it bad, quite frankly, we've seen protests at Swinburne this week, Uh, we've seen uh, talk of industrial action over in WA, we've seen industrial action happening at the University of Sydney, Uh, but Van and I are talking to some people and we hope to bring you a bit of a deeper discussion about higher education in Australia on this coming Wednesday's episode of The Week on Wednesday. We also anticipate that there will be more ACTU discussion papers as they keep rolling them out in the lead-up to the summit. And isn't it great to see we're having national debates about issues that matter to working people? So until then, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.